Here at Country Roads Magazine, for 40 years with curiosity as our guide, we've been wandering the back roads of Louisiana and Mississippi, discovering and sharing Southern culture's most compelling stories. Our latest project is Detours, a podcast where we'll dive deeper into some favorite stories from our recent issues and crack open the door to our editorial meeting, letting you, dear listener, in on our process of choosing and refining the stories that land in country roads. Think of it as a friendly audio companion to your monthly magazine, a chance to really hear the voices of the artists, chefs, farmers, musicians, designers, and other culture bearers who make our vibrantly unique region like no other. It's a chance to listen closer and discover more. And maybe laugh a little too. I'm James Fox-Smith, publisher. And I'm Jordan Lahey-Fontenot, managing editor. And I'm Alexandra Kennan, arts and entertainment editor. And this is Detours, a new podcast from your friends at Country Roads Magazine. I'm James Fox-Smith, Country Roads publisher. And today I'm here with Chris Turner-Neal, regular contributor and senior managing editor of 64 Parishes magazine, and we're speaking with Maida Owens. Maida is a cultural anthropologist specializing in Louisiana traditional cultures. She's been with the Louisiana Division for the Arts since 1986, during which time she has worked with organizations and researchers across the state to identify one of Louisiana's most important assets, and that being its traditional folk artists, to determine the most innovative and effective ways to present Louisiana's folk musicians, storytellers, and craftsmen to Louisiana citizens and to the world. She was director of the Louisiana Crafts Marketing Program from 1986 until it ended in 2008. And on a personal note, I'd just like to add that in my early years at Country Roads in the late 90s, when I was first here and knew very, very little about the culture, I found myself calling Maida's number many, many times when I needed uh, to have a little guidance or help with uh, understanding how to connect with and find the relevant and important stories in Louisiana's cultural and folk traditions. Um, and she was always gracious and extremely patient uh, with with uh, leading me in the right direction. So, Maida Owens, it's a great privilege. Welcome to Country Roads Detours podcast. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Maida, I'd like to start just by defining for listeners, what is folk life? Tell us what this study consists of and what's brought in under that term. Okay, well, it's a relatively new word. Um, it grew out of the discipline, uh, the academic discipline of folklore. There are actually people who get degrees and, uh, you know, in order to study and do this type of work. Um, and folk life is a little bit more broader than the word folklore, that many people think of folklore as being the oral traditions, uh, whereas technically it's, it's, it is more inclusive, but that's often what people think of it, you know, as storytelling. Um, so folk life uh, often became uh, the name of different public programs. Uh, the Smithsonian Folk Life Festival, uh, many of the state programs are folk life programs. Uh, and that was to be more clear that it was more than the storytelling. It's all the different tra traditions and genres um, that, that people you know, have in their lives. So, tell, so give us some examples. When you talk to people about folk life and about preserving it, 
what traditions are you talking to them about and trying to get them to understand as part of this? I often use, when, when I get that quizzical look, I often use the phrase traditional cultures. And that there often is a head nodding just as y'all did. <laughs> um, yeah, that, oh, okay. Especially uh, internationally, the, the concept of traditional cultures uh, rings uh, uh, true. Um, but that's uh, folklore and the folk arts are all, uh, you know, the music, the dance, the crafts, the um, rituals, you know, so it's it's very broad. It's all those, uh, what, but, but what differentiates it between other types of research about, especially about traditional culture, is that we focus in on the expressive traditions, this expressive culture. So the music, the dance, but also the occupations. Uh, and it's any of those that are shared by a group and passed down over time. That's the technique, you know, that's the, the definition I use in brochures and on the website and such. So the group can be any group, you know, so it can be my family, it can be my neighborhood, it can be my town, it could be my uh, cultural, you know, uh, my ethnicity, my heritage, uh, it's whatever group, it, your occupational group, like there's folklore about folklorists. <laughs> so presumably Mater, it might also encompass food, yes. it might encompass dance, it might encompass language and dialect and accent. Is it these these features as well? Oh, definitely. And now one thing we do make a difference concerning language is um, like in our programming, we don't teach a language but the tradition can be in whatever language you you know it, it should be in. So we we do support the 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 various languages of Louisiana, but not so much as teaching the language as teaching the stories of the language, the songs of the of the language. Got it. Got it. Um, how did you? You've been doing this a long time. Yes. You. Uh, I know you were doing it in the mid '90s, and I believe longer than that. So. How did you come to work with folk life? How did you get involved in this field? Well, I found it really early. Um, well, actually, I found cultural anthropology very early. I found it in high school, and that those were my majors in college. My my bachelor's and my master's degrees are, are in cultural anthropology from LSU. And I just knew that that's what I wanted to do with my life. And I feel so blessed that I was able to not only do that, because many people with this, you know, specialized training don't end up finding a job, but I was actually able to find one in my hometown because I am from Baton Rouge. I was born in New Orleans and raised here. And so I was able to um, fit this into my life in really special ways. Were you... During your upbringing, during your childhood, were you very aware of the culture around you or is it a bit, I guess for most people, you know, there's that idea that a fish doesn't know that a fish is in water. Uh, or is it, is it the same kind of scenario or is there a certain point at which you realize, oh, this is what makes my life unique? No, basically uh, my parents um, were both mainstream American um, 
my father even made an effort to divorce himself from his heritage and background. Um, and when we would ask him, what are we? Because I wanted to be something, you know, what are we? Um, this was, you know, the, the, the 50s and the early 60s. And he would say, you're Heinz 57. You've got a little bit. And genetically, that's true that we're, we are incredibly mixed. Uh, there, we are not predominantly one culture. Um, but I think that was part of why being in South Louisiana and not being French, not being Spanish, not being African, not being Indian, not being all the above, or even Upland South, like in, in truth, my, most of my family is Upland South from uh, North Mississippi and North Louisiana. Um, but I wanted to be something. And so I think that's part of why this intrigued me so much. So the folk life programs are under the Division of the Arts, which is itself a division of the state government. Why is this field of study something the state government is involved in? Well, every state has a state arts agency that it gets funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. And we're actually, we're, we're required, you know, that that is part of the federal state uh, agreement that you have a state arts agency. And these all came, uh, these started in the uh, 1960s. Um, but then it, by, after the bicentennial in uh, 1976, um, the states wanted to have program. some states wanted to have programs that focus in on the traditions, the, 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 the uh, traditional culture, the folk life uh, of each state and include that in the start a state arts agency programming. And so we were one of those early adopters. We, uh, we had a folk life program by uh, 1979. Um, and, but why it's important is that everybody has traditional culture, you know, that some people can relate to some of the finer arts and I, totally embrace them and encourage people to participate in the arts at all levels. But there's a connection with your folk culture. There's a connection with your heritage um, that is, is even beyond the connection to the arts, in my opinion. In Louisiana, it's, it just seemed to me that we seem to recognize the value um, of preserving folk life traditions. And I wondered, do you was that always there? Do you feel that 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 awareness that Louisiana's cultural assets are perhaps unique or rich or specifically or particularly worth preserving is a function of or a feature of the state and the work that the department has done? That's a really good question and and an important one. Um, yes, I do think. You know, Louisiana's folk traditions and cultures are unique among in the United States. At least some of them are, uh, especially you know, the ones in South Louisiana with the the creolized uh, culture. Um, and so that sets us apart and ha gives us a special identity. And some of the tension between North Louisiana and South Louisiana is, you know, y'all are special and get all the attention and we're up here. Um, but I like to point out that the entire state of Miss, almost the entire state of Mississippi, Alabama, much of Georgia 
is very similar to North Louisiana, and they don't go around saying, you know, we we don't have we don't have those special things. That I sincerely believe every community has special traditions that are worthy of recognition. Um, now, there's a difference between the people appreciating it and valuing it and then supporting it. Okay. <laughs> a big difference. Um, but because one of the interesting things that we have here is we love to talk about, you know, all of our traditions, our food, our our music, you know, we, we've we've shared this with the world. But in many ways, we don't necessarily support them in more tangible ways. Um, yes, we have probably more festivals than most states, um, but my mantra has been, let's get beyond the festival. There, there are more substantive work that needs to be done uh, and not just celebrate, but really get in there and support. And that's kind of what I'm, I'm seriously focused on. But then there's also the, the issue of uh, support within state government. And the Division of the Arts funding has ebbed and flowed over the years. Uh, you know, we we have, except for the 90s and into the aughts a little bit, well, the late 90s to the into the aughts, um, we had substantial funding. But before that and after that, we're back at the, you know, we're, we're like the 56th state in funding. Um, so, it, but, but you know, there's always work to be done. No matter how much money you have or don't have, there's always work that can be done. Are there other metas in other states? Are the, are they lucky enough to have a version of you in Mississippi and Arkansas and Texas? Absolutely, yeah. Um, now, it used to be optional with the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, and about, typically, there were about 35 folk life programs at any one time for, for a long time. But a few years ago, the National Endowment for the Arts decided that every state needs to have um, a, well, they call it a folk and traditional arts program. That's the broad term for all of them. And so now we're in this interesting process of reaching out to the states that have never had these programs and their special programs to, to help the staff figure out what they can do with it under this umbrella. The American Folklore Society works closely with the National Assembly of State Arts Agencies and the NEA to um, make that happen in every state. And am I right that the territories have them too, like Puerto Rico and oh, yeah. Bob and the Marianas? Yeah, and then there are also uh, regional arts organizations. Uh, southeastern United States has uh, South Arts in Atlanta. And there, there's Arts Midwest. You know, there, there, there are six different region arts regions in the country. And those regions and the offices that that uh, that sort of hold them or that that define them uh, is each focused on interpreting, uh, um, chronicling, and and developing the the arts and the folk life programs in those regions. Yes and no. Um, no agency can do everything. You know, like the legislation creating the Louisiana Folklife Program is that 
uh, identify, document, preserve, and present the folk traditions of Louisiana. You know, that's that's the mandate. But that's huge. You know, so you end up having to pick and choose. And so and and then each arts agency has different amounts of of uh, resources too and staff you know like some of the big uh state arts agencies have staffs of 36 you know um we have a staff of 7 uh and some are even smaller than ours um so it's it's apples and oranges across the country but all of them end up trying to incorporate some aspect of this. So it might be touring, like South Arts uh, is really big on supporting touring, or historically has, and they've been adding a whole lot of fascinating um, uh, programs in the last several years. They've been very successful at getting foundation funding to, do, to expand their work considerably. But foundations don't give to state governments. So we are kind of limited to what the legislature gives us and what the National Endowment for the Arts gives us. I do other things with in partnerships in order to tap into foundation funding, like uh, what we'll t- be talking about um, later, you know, like the Louisiana Endowment of Humanities funds some of the work that I'm involved with. So, so uh, they certainly fund my rented utilities. <laughs> Thank you. We're, we're very grateful for their presence. Yeah. Yes. One of the things I enjoyed most about our conversation earlier is the idea of the Folk Life Program starting from a project from um, that was presented at the World Expo in New Orleans in 1984. Would you tell us that story? Yeah, that's actually a fascinating story. It didn't actually start there. Uh, it blo- The festival blossomed there. Uh, Nick Spitzer was the first state uh, folklorist. There's not technically a, a position named that, but we end up being called state folklorist. And he started in 79. He was actually the first employee hired by the new director uh, while he was staffing up in 79. And um, so between 79 and 85, when Nick left, he accomplished, uh, he really set the groundwork for what came later. Uh, he created, um, he, he seized the opportunity of the World's Fair to have the Folklife Pavilion, if you, if y'all, some of you may remember that. Uh, and in there was a, a fabulous exhibit called the Creole State Collection. And so uh, that he pulled together um, a collection of all the folk crafts in the state. And I still have that collection. The program still has that collection. And um, we're thinking about revisiting folk crafts soon, too. Uh, but the other thing was that the Folklife Pavilion had um, um, music performances every day for six months. So that forced everyone to identify all the different cultures and and help present them at the festival so they you know they would have Isleño week or nor you know old time country uh week or and and then they had food demonstrations it it was basically a full fully developed folk life festival every day for 6 months does that mean do you think that the the initial uptake or development of the program is 
is inextricably linked with the fact that the World's Fair took place in New Orleans because it kind of focused people's attention. Yeah, it was definitely a factor. Yeah, you know, yeah. Definitely like a factor. Um, like if, if it had happened in another place, perhaps that that population of people would have been appreciate being like, oh, we've got this 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 great depth of folklife tradition that we need to interpret and figure out how to how to share. Exactly, exactly. And that's fascinating because the folklore of the Country Roads Office is that the fair and the excitement about it was a main factor in starting the magazine. It was to bring people out of New Orleans and come come see the Felicianas, come see English Louisiana, as it was for a time. Yes, it was the it was the fundamental um, uh, what the the driver that got my mother in law Dorcas Brown to found Country Roads in the first place was all of the promotional material that was coming out. Um, of the Office of Tourism in 1982-83 about how the world would be coming to Louisiana. And Dorcas's premise was, well, there's plenty more to see other than what's happening in New Orleans. What we need is a magazine so those people can get out and explore the things happening in small towns as well. Of course, no one even stopped for gas in St. Francisville on their way to the World's Fair. But it turned out that it um, it resonated with with locals. As a, as a fellow 1984 project, I feel fondly for the World Expo. <laughs> I think everybody does. Yeah, yeah. And all those archives are in my collection. I have a special collection at LSU Library uh, in their special collections, and so all of that is available. All the all the tapes um, from the World's Fair, photographs from it, but the the documentation uh, that that this program generates is for the public, you know, so it is for you. And, and I, before it went over to the LSU, uh, I would get photograph uh, requests saying, I, can I have a copy of my grandfather's interview at this, you know, program that y'all did. And so we would make a cassette tape and now I can send them over to LSU instead of me doing it. Cause, um, that's. I, I bet a lot of people don't know about that. We will definitely have to make sure that we get the information included in the show notes about how people can explore that archive and then access what's inside of it. Yeah, actually, LSU Archive told me several years ago that we were like one of the top three collections that gets requested which really blew me away. Or was it seven? I might, I might be wrong on that. But, and, and plus, they told me that many years ago. But nevertheless, it is a frequently requested collection uh, that they have. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the research you've done over the course of your career, because you have these big projects that, if I understand you correctly, have led to this archive. You did the big study on the Florida Paris. You did this huge storytelling examination. Uh, tell us a little bit about those. Okay. Well, the Florida parishes was where I got introduced to this and made the transition from cultural anthropologist to public folklorist. Um, I, I was one of the uh, field workers, researchers, that Nick Spitzer had for uh, the Florida parishes. One of the, my first tasks when I took over uh, the Folklife program in 1988 was to finish and publish the Florida parishes. Um, and in between Nick and I was uh, Bob Gates, who was here for two years, and he, he focused a lot on 
the Louisiana Folklife Festival, uh, making it continue and not just letting it die. And it, it lived for a long time, and, and that was a significant contribution. But when I got there, I wanted to kind of slow down and go deeper. So one of the first projects I had was the storytelling program. And that happened very uh, serendipitous that the Louisiana Office of Tourism approached me about helping them with uh, one of the four components for Louisiana 1990. And one of them was the storytelling program. And they wanted to have storytelling pavilions at festivals all over the state. So I said, I will if you record all the sessions. And they did. And so I ended up with 500 cassettes of storytelling sessions all at 71 festivals across the the, um, state in one year. So what an incredible snapshot. And then, so I have all this and I say, okay, well, I need to do something with it. It's a resource. You know, what are we going to do with it? So this project is actually kind of backwards because it started with the public programming and then we mined the public programming for uh, what became Swapping Stories, Folk Tales uh, from Louisiana. And that was published, um, what was that, about 1999, I think it was. Um, and as, as the book people say, it has legs. That They still sell a few of them, you know, here and there. And it's a good coffee table book. But it's, it's a thick coffee table book because it has, it has like 100 plus stories in it. Uh, no, 100 storytellers and researchers involved with it and, and all these stories. So that, that was my first big project. That took nine years. From the time it was an idea to when the book was finally published, I think it was nine years that um, it took. Uh, so there were other things happening during that time, of course. Another big project was Louisiana Voices Educator's Guide. And in 1995, well, 1994, Louisiana was zeroed out of state budget. We, can't, we had a budget of only NEA funds for one fiscal year. And then the next year, that activated the lobbying on uh, for the arts in significant ways, because I wasn't just cutting folk life, that was cutting the entire division of the arts. And so they ended up coming, if you give us a dollar for every person in the state, half of it will go back into your parish per capita. And so our income suddenly jumped up in the late 90s. And how did you... How did the department use that to? Well, that this the uh, storytelling is 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 one of the ways. And for example, I went in and said, well, actually, I pitched two different ideas during that time because I said, you know, the storytelling pro- program really deserves a video. And so I got funding to to make the video, and then um, I went in. And I said, you know, the thing that we really have never addressed in this. Uh, program is how do you help teachers use all this information in the classroom? So that was another 10 year plus project and it ended up being called Louisiana Voices uh, and it's louisianavoices.org and they're still online. Now at some point I went in and edited out to use your cassette tape and instructions on, you know, uh, on analog technology 
Um, and and so it's still current, and it 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 still gets used. I still hear about things. It but but then later we got major budget cuts, and I had to stop doing education. Um, then I had another period of about uh, seven or eight years where I focused on the um, more recent people, immigrants to the state. Okay, new populations. New new populations, and uh, because we had. You know, before that time, we focused on the indigenous peoples, the descendants of the earliest settlers, and the waves of immigration, you know, the Italians and the Irish and that, that came later, even Croatians, Hungarians. But we really hadn't brought it up to the more recent ones. And so um, that program was twofold, is one, to help them uh, not only document them, but to bring them into the arts network. Got it. Okay. So um, along those lines, then, how do new projects get chosen? That's discernment with me, the director here. And also I have the Louisiana Folklife Commission. Uh, that is a, a governor-appointed body of 22 people who advise uh, not only me, but all of CRT and state government, or they can advise anybody they want, quite, quite frankly. And so they, I, I run ideas by them. For example, just at the last one a few weeks ago, I, I brainstormed with them an idea of the next major focus would be about folk crafts, because so many craftspeople that were documented in the 80s and 90s are no longer with us, and they're not doing walking sticks. You know, they're not doing so, so many of the traditions are either on the verge of not being here anymore or, um, or very few people. I've learned, though, is you never say the last passed away or, the, you know, the, the, he, this is the only person that does this. It's the only person that I know of that does this. <laughs> because, uh, so that's a trial and error kind of discovery, is it? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. that goes back to field work. You know, during the early years of the program, uh, there was so much field work and, and documentation. And then that was incorporated in quite a few projects. Um, but we probably need to start circling back to, to field work for the crafts because... Um, we're not having the the crafts at festivals like we used to. Oh, interesting. Talk about that. Do, well, actually, I, I, maybe this is along the same lines. Have you found that uh, the ways in which folk life is is recognized and incorporated into day-to-day -day life goes in fashions or cycles? Yes, yes. And, and, and it, I think it also relates to funding because some of these types of programs are programming is quite expensive. Related to festivals are there were just so many of them. And um, there were a lot of small community festivals that basically did the field work to identify the basket maker, the wood carver, the corn shock doll maker, you know, the, the crawfish bisque maker. Uh, and presented them at these small communities. Um, but th so many of those festivals are not doing that anymore, especially the crafts. They're, they're, music still gets presented. And it's because crafts is expensive to present unless it's a marketplace. 
And what I'm talking about is craft demonstrations that are not um, based on sales, but on demonstrating educational. So you can ask people to come, but why would they do that for free? Especially some of these traditions like building a St. Joseph's altar is a lot of work and they're not going to sell anything. You know, there, there's nothing to sell at, to de- when you demonstrate a St. Joseph's altar. And there are a lot of things like that. Do you, in, in that sense then, do you f- see a lot of traditional crafts being endangered because of the lack of demonstration? Do you think that that contributes to the, the declining of the practice of it? Um, that's definitely part of it. I think it's more complicated than that. Um, a lot of, in what way, a lot of these traditions were related to rural occupational crafts like corn shuck weaving, split oak basket making. They are no longer needed. So they were continued for nostalgia purposes. Okay. Because if you can buy a a perfectly functional basket from Walmart, yeah, you don't need to sit and spend all afternoon making one. Right. Um, and so during the 80s and 90s, the people that we found were typically older. And actually, most of them were African-American or Creole. Uh, and so part of it was about economics, but older people in retirement wanting to connect to their culture, what, you know, continuing something. But the children didn't, ha- their children and grandchildren didn't have the same experience with the split oak basket or the uh, or, or negative ones. Like you, you hear people talk about, they don't want to think about cotton picking. You know, that's not, that's not a, that's not a, a good memory. But so some of this didn't get passed on. And then when grandpa or grandma passes away, oops, nobody learned it, you know, or they watched it, but never really did it. There were some, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say this is um, everybody. But it's definitely an issue. But that's not to say there are not other people out there that we just don't know about. And that's what we're talking about now is we need to find out what is going on. That brings me to a point that I really liked that you made about folk life being important for human well-being and the connections it builds with people. Explain that to us. Yeah, well, that definition is relatively new for me. And that came out of the work with the concern for the coast. I, you know, I'm, I'm from here. I'll tell you my origin story with this. Uh, I'm from here. I grew up with hurricanes. I remember standing outside in 1965 and letting Hurricane Betsy push me over, you know. Um, and I'm well aware of the coast. I, in At LSU in the 70s, we were talking about coastal erosion then and, and saltwater intrusion, the whole bit. But until the 2016 flood, it didn't get up close and personal with me. And that's the first time in my life that I thought somebody in Baton Rouge, namely me, might need to evacuate at some point or even relocate. And that set me on a, a way of thinking about the urgency, I knew the urgency was there, but it did light a fire under me to take action. And then in 2018, Jonathan Foray with the South Louisiana Wetlands Discovery Center 
invited the Louisiana Folklore Society to have their meeting in uh, Homa. And for two years, we, we were there. And his big point is we have to help save the cultures of South Louisiana because of all the, the displacement and all the disruption that is happening. And I knew it was happening, but he really honed in on it. So what we did is create the Bayou Culture Collaborative. So that is the Louisiana Folklore Society is the home of it, but the Folklife Program is a partner in there along with uh, numerous other groups. And luckily, the Division of the Arts was willing to actually put up some money and, and not initially, but um, I, I was the first of the partners that was actually in a, in a position to direct some money to this. So I got permission from NEA to redirect uh, what I had been doing about musical instrument build building in the state to focus on the That project's just put on hold and hopefully we'll be able to get back to it someday. So I started uh, two things. One relates to what we were just talking about, these traditions that are dying out. And so I saw the need to help people pass on their traditions. And so I started a little grants program through the uh, Louisiana Folklife, Folklore Society where I, I pay masters to do workshops in order to just keep the thing alive at this point, okay? And so that's where, you know, my, my favorite story about this, there, there's so many of them, but I'll share one about Geraldine Robertson. She had been in California for 10 years living with family. And last year she moved back home and found out that I was doing this. And she contacted me and she wanted to teach split oak basket making. Well, she is the, at this point, she is the only person that I know of that is still making split oak basket makers. There are two others that are not active. They know how to do it, but they, they're not active. And so um, over the course of the year, um, I worked with her. I helped her connect with uh, Port Hudson State Historic Site to harvest trees because the landowner she had li lined up uh, uh, backed out due to hunting lease. And then I also connected her with West Baton Rouge Museum, and they hosted it. But get this. She said she wanted it to be five consecutive full-day workshops in May. And my thought was, yeah, that's a fabulous immersive ex experience, but how in the world are you going to get people to take off a week to do this? But that's what she wanted to do. You know, that's what she wanted to do. Immediately, they had 15 people register. So there's a demand. There's a, there is a desire and a demand, even if we don't necessarily recognize it at the outset. Yeah. She's an example of a tradition bearer that approached me, others I approached, but sometimes um, another purpose of the Passing It On grants is so that uh, to reach out to cultural groups that have not already participated in the arts network. And so I made a point of um, reaching out to the Pornishen Indian tribe, um, the... Um, Dulac Band of the Chittimacha, no, Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw, um, the Grand Village in, in, 
Indian village in Plaquemines. Uh, and there are more, there, but there are other groups that, that um, need to be reached out to. Now, you're talking about groups who are needing to be relocated or to relocate from their traditional land. They're, they're definitely the vulnerable, but, yeah. but not necessarily relocate. This isn't necessarily related to relocating because there are other groups that um, you know are much farther along than that. But but I just wanted to connect. This was a means to connect with groups that we had never connected with before. And in that case, I asked them, what tradition do you have that's of that's valued by the community? And sometimes it's storytelling, sometimes it's foodways. Um, it, it, it can be all kinds of different things that they choose, but they choose. I don't tell people what they have to do in those circumstances. I wondered if you could point out which are some of the healthiest or most the the most well perpetuated folk life traditions extant in the state and perhaps don't need are, help yeah, yeah maybe and then maybe what are some of the most endangered okay uh, yeah i over the years i always use gumbo as the example of a tradition that doesn't need public funding doesn't need help got it but on the other hand Janie Luster with the United Home and Nations said, but Indian gumbo is endangered. People are not making the gumbo the way they used to. For example, it, this is a slightly different pro program, but Folklife Month is in October, and the Folklife Commission and the Folklore Society uh, select ambassadors who select somebody to be recognized. And this year, Connie Castile um, in Brobridge is recognizing two sisters who make crawfish bisque. So some food way, you know, crawfish bisque is a labor intensive dish. That is, that is, uh, you know, multiple day. If you start completely from scratch, it's like a three day process. Uh, and it's a good example of a festive festival food or a, a special events food that, you know, the pasta making for Italians is, as, as you know, is an example for them. But there's often this very labor, or tamales for Mexicans that are very labor intensive. They make huge quantities. Um, or a boucherie, presumably. Yeah, a boucherie would definitely be that. Um, so it, it, I'm hesitant to say traditions that don't need help because their special circumstances, you know, it depends on the community and, and you know, that, like if you, you can have a small community where practically all the younger generations have moved away and they're not learning whatever it is. So having an event to bring them back and engage them in that tradition, whether it's St. Joseph's altar or the boucherie, you know, has a lot of value because, and that gets back to what Chris, what you were saying about well-being, because with this, focus on the coast, the other thing that I realized I needed to do was help get culture into the coastal conversation, the coastal restoration conversation. Okay. So it's more about more than just land going away, water what are, coming up. What to about the people it? and our cultures? Because we love to talk about how important our culture is, but with the amount of disruption and displacement that we are experiencing already and is just going to accelerate, 
there's a real risk of us losing our cultures. And I, that's, that's a plural cultures because there are many cultures of South, South Louisiana and Louisiana um, that they, you know, we need to think more intentionally about this. And so I started what I call the sense of place and loss workshops to start having a dialogue between the scientists, the policymakers, the humanists, the tradition bearers, the artists, all the above. And then the Bayou Culture Collaborative started the monthly gatherings in 2022. Uh, and that was with LEH funding also, but also um, Louisiana Division of the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts funding. So those three funding sources and a few others enabled us to start this monthly programming and it's continuing. And so that put me in a position of talking to more scientists, policy people, agency people. And what's, what evolved was this reasoning that, because why, why with everything that everybody's dealing with, mental health, relocation, you know, the loss of your house, you know, food, shelter. Why worry about culture? And my answer to that is culture is what gives us a sense of well-being. It connects us. It's all those networks. And so when you take somebody and relocate them, especially if it's alone and not e even with neighbors and friends and or extended family, their adjustment is going to be that much more challenging because some things don't transfer well. Um, you know, if, if y'all are familiar, this is, happens typically in rural communities, but it can happen in suburbia and urban settings too. It's just a little different. But everybody has these huge gardens and they're growing way more tomatoes than any one family could possibly, possibly use. I'm familiar with this problem. And I know people who don't even like tomatoes, who grow tomatoes because they are a, a way to gift and barter in the community. So you come home and you have a bushel of peas you have a sack of cabbage you have you know you have all this food that just appears on you and so when you move all of that is disrupted now it can be reestablished but it takes time especially if you're not if you're alone and you having to even make new relationships but even if you go with your people it takes time to reestablish a garden you know they don't just move with you so sure. So uh, whether it be growing of uh, tomatoes or tomatoes, tomatoes, or whether it be um, making tamales or um, participating in a boucherie, the the transmission of those folk life or the participation in those folk life rituals, uh, it it binds people together socially one to another in a contemporary sense, but also to the kind of long arc of their, their community's history. Yeah. And Louisiana people, you know, we, we've had several diasporas from, 
from Louisiana. We have a lot of people in Texas. Um, we have uh, uh, so many uh, African-Americans went to Chicago and, and that area during the uh, Great Mi Migration North. And then a lot of them ended up, a lot of Creoles especially ended up in California. And I was just recently reminded by Mark DeWitt, who um, did his dissertation on, on that phenomenon. And he reminded me that Louisiana expat communities, you know, especially the Creoles in California, that the house dances were very important to helping them adjust to the new, new life. Now, somebody might say, oh, that'll happen anyway. Well, they may not move together anyway, but if they do, they'll, they'll re recreate the tradition anyway. But there are ways to go in and support and connect people to make, to help that transition be that much easier. So there is a role for public programming, for public agencies to think about this, if nothing else for the mental health, you know, the mental health issues, you know, just to give people comfort and connection is, is huge. Well, I suppose people move. Diasporas happen when some trauma, some large scale trauma forces people from well, the Great Migration, you know, the, the westward mo movement uh, in the United States was not was a pull instead of a push. There's push migration and pull migration. Okay. Um, and it's still disruption. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 but, uh, but it's even worse when it wasn't your choice. You have to leave. I guess I'm thinking about the Louisiana communities in places like Houston that followed or the New Orleans communities that, that followed Hurricane Katrina. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Texas is supposed to be our number one destination. It always has been. You know, there are even Cajun songs about going to Texas. So we're continuing that trend. Stands to reason. It, it's easier to uh, get the meter right than Mississippi as well, I suppose, when, you, when you're coming up with the, with the line. It, maybe so, yeah. But there are a lot of, lot of I've heard of so many people move into Mississippi from the extreme coast. They are leaving the state, and sure. we are depopulating. That that's all. That's already yeah. happening. That's. I guess that's the subject <laughs> for a whole another podcast. <laughs> but this is just another way that a program like the Folk Life Program can be part of that conversation and help the other agencies under uh, develop strategies um, to achieve their own goals, like the mental health people have their own goals that they need, but, but including culture in that can, can be part of the conversation. And I'm, we have a fascinating mix of people who show up for the Bayou Culture Gatherings. We had 92 register for the one last week and 47 showed up. You know, the first one we did, uh, 150 registered and 90 showed up. So now tell us, um, I th you talked about these, but I don't think we know the um, the frequency and the and and the tempo with which they happen. Tell us a little about people who are interested in getting involved or learning more about it. Where do they turn? Well, it turns out that when we started doing this, 
we well one we were new on the new on the block we we had not been participating in this conversation for decades like so many of them were but it turns out that a lot of environmentalists and planners had been talking about this uh, the the need to consider what's called the human dimension for for decades and but got nowhere and they were working in silos and so the Bayou Culture Collaborative ended up appearing on the scene with this message as a lot of the science, you know, the, the, the um, CPRA, the uh, Coastal Protection Restoration Authority, um, was kind of figuring out all the science of it. And so what one scientist said, well, we kind of had to focus in on that. But now a lot of that has figure, been figured out. I'm sure there's always more science to figure out. I'm not saying they're done. But there was a lot of serendipity in what we were doing and what we were saying. And it really resonated with a lot of people who are not necessarily coming from the arts and culture. A lot more people care about this than the arts administrators, you know, the social researchers, the folklorist type. It matters to a much wider cross-section of the population. And, and you feel like more people are recognizing that than they used to be? Is it easier? Is it an easier sell than it was 40 years ago? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think it just changes. You know, I, I, you know, like back in the 80s and 90s, we were selling festivals and books and videos and fun stuff and look how wonderful we are. And there was, you know, like the, the Folklife Festival um, tagline was celebrate our diversity, you know, um, but things have gotten tougher, you know, that um, that's not the message right now. Say the message now is, is preserve it while it's still here. Yeah. Do something or lose it, you know. What's doing something? What would you like people to do or know they can do? Um, well, first, I think it has needs to be on an individual level where they really look at their own background. They understand uh, where they're coming from, um, appreciate it. And that's definitely, uh, you know, a lot of people definitely do that. But then on a community level, I would love to see more um, municipalities have programs that go beyond the festival. Personally, I don't think we need more festivals. We've got plenty. Heresy. <laughs> Um, but there are other types of ways to, for example, here in Baton Rouge, we have, you know, the first or second largest communities, you know, size population, especially in the greater Baton Rouge area. But how many cultural centers do we have that support specific cultures? Oh, you mean as a, as for example, a, um, like a, a Creole cultural center? Exactly. Um, or, you know, so that they can gather. Whereas a city of this size, why isn't that happening? Now, with a lot of the immigrants, though their gathering places are, are around their sacred sites, their temples, um, uh, their mosques, but there's so many other groups that are not necessarily so focused on the associated with the religion 
and and the and the role of the church or the temple or what it may not be to teach foodways or to you know have storytelling programs or you know quilting i miss the international heritage festival mm-hmm. do you yeah. remember oh um, yeah. I, when did that go away probably mid 2000s 2000 aughts yeah something but in that there. was such a um, I always ended up at the Australian tent with the other three Australians in Baton Rouge, um, and there were pies. We had part, we had sausage rolls. Um, we had the footy on, and uh, we every now and again someone would have lamingtons. It was mostly about the food. Um, at the time, there was a lady named uh, Liz. I remember she had a shop called the Aussie Trader on Perkins Road. And she um, she was a bit of a Pied Piper for displaced Australians and would gather everybody together. And the funny thing about it was, you know, we all came from these very different walks of life and backgrounds, but there was this one thing each year that would pull us all together that none of that mattered anymore, um, just to celebrate the things that we missed, do miss from the place we grew up. And, uh, and I think that every booth, the thing that was so authentic about that festival was that Every single booth up and down North Boulevard in downtown Baton Rouge was filled with a disparate group of people who had gathered together under the same circumstances to just celebrate and share the things they thought were wonderful about home. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I suppose on the same level, that, that, that counts for any community in any place. Exactly. And I'll share a story about the Home Nation, United Home Nation. Um, you know, I spent five years doing a project called the Baton Rouge Traditions Project. And uh, that ended up being a, an online book of essays an ex- and an exhibit that traveled. Um, and it was probably a year or so after that when I was starting to talk to Janie about, because uh, she's a palmetto weaver. And that's that's a good example of a tradition that is has special meaning to a group where the palmetto weaving for the United Home and Nation is is very symbolic and very very important. And she's one of the the key weavers. And uh, so I was talking to her about you know if she wanted to to do a, um, a workshop with the passing it on funds. And she said, yes. And she says, do you know that there are all these Homa in Baton Rouge? And I said, no. I just finished a five-year research project and had no idea that there were Homa Indians in Baton Rouge. And so I asked, I said, well, then they, are they in a part of town? No. Um, do they go to a church or a bar or, you know, hang out somewhere? No. Is there a leader? No. Do they get together at all? No. Well, that's the perfect way to lose your culture. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I hope to work with them in the future about, and then this was during COVID, so it was hard to do some, some types of things during COVID, even though we did have, um, we did have uh, virtual and um, in-person workshops, but they made those decisions that no, nothing was required. Um, but yeah, the, the, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a place that could help the Homa Indians in this area gather. And that's for every other culture you can list. I think we've done it. Is there anything we didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about? Any 
sales pitches, soapboxes, yell it into the night. Oh yeah, that okay. I, I can do the website, the, the folk life website, and then uh, direct them to the uh, the Bayou Culture Collaborative um, online. Um, the Louisiana Folklore Society has information about it, and everybody is invited to um, attend the uh, Bayou Culture gatherings. Or if you want to dive in even more. Uh, we have four working groups and probably two others in development that are working on the nitty gritty of all this and how to make, you know, make changes. And all of it is free and all anyone is welcome to anything. It, you know, like if you're concerned about receiving communities, you can drop in and participate in, in conversations with planners and researchers and neighbors, you know, you're everybody is welcome to all of them. We have one on artists uh, and tradition bearers. Uh, we have uh, French language. They're they're planning a summit in the in the fall, in in French, and then the culture and coastal policy working group is who created the uh, position statement for this and and that is officially asking state agencies researchers to include the human dimension especially culture in the in the uh, community resilience conversation given the threats to the coast to the um the 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 shrinking footprint of louisiana what gives you hope my hope is that people are showing up and they want to talk about it they want to my hope is that our cultures survive the disruption. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that I'm seeing people who care. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, and if you're still with us at this point, we assume that you do. Please subscribe to Detours. Give us a rating and maybe even send it to a friend. And if you're not already reading Country Roads magazine, you probably should be. To read online, find a copy, or subscribe to have the monthly issues delivered to your door, visit countryroadsmag.com. Detours is written, reported, and produced by us, the editorial team at Country Roads Magazine. James Fox Smith, Jordan Lahe Fontenot, and Alexandra Kennan. Our theme music was written and recorded by Bill Daniel and Sam Shaheen of Naughty Professor and produced by Bill Daniel at Wildchild Studios in New Orleans. The audio editing for this season was done by me, Jordan Lahe Fontenot, and Alexandra Kinnan. The Detours logo and other graphics were designed by Country Roads Magazine's creative director, Courtney Zimmerman. So until our next detour, don't be a stranger. You can always reach us at detours at countryroadsmag.com. And thanks for listening.